This is an ABC podcast. Hello from the lands of the Kulin Nation, Hilary Harper with you. We're heading into the holiday season and that means we get to revisit some of your favourite stories from the year. Okay, so we are going to be talking about love today, but not so much romantically as forensically. I want to know what makes a relationship healthy. And how do you learn what that is? Do you have role models among people you know? Or do you look to literature or TV or popular culture? Should we be taking our cues from Rachel and Ross on Friends, for example? Or maybe Jane Austen has some pointers. This is RN Summer. When it comes to romantic relationships, sometimes it can feel like we all have to work it out for ourselves. But if there are role models you've looked to to help work out what's a healthy relationship, please share them. I'm interested today in whether literature, movies or TV help or hinder your understanding of love as well. Whether it's Shakespeare or Married at First Sight or people in your own life, what are your influences when it comes to love and good relationships? Clinton Power is a relationship counsellor. Welcome, Clinton. Thanks, Hilary. Great to be here. Great to have you here. And Associate Professor Lauren Rosewarne is a social scientist and an expert in media and pop culture at Melbourne University. Lauren, great to chat with you today. Hey, Hilary. Thanks for having me. What an interesting selection of people for this particular topic. Uh, Clinton, let's talk first about the elements of a healthy relationship, you know, that are broadly understood in the therapeutic world. Will they be the same for everyone? Well, the good news, uh, Hilary, is we actually have a lot of research on what makes up a healthy relationship. Uh, Doctors John and Julie Gottman have been researching couples for over 40 years. And yes, there are a number of elements which really span across all relationships. Things like trust and commitment really are the pillars of any relationship. Um, The friendship aspect of relationship is really critical. How well do you know your partner's world? And regularly showing fondness and appreciation, acts of kindness, verbal appreciations are essential. And I think really critical to every relationship is how well you manage conflict because we know that all couples have conflict even the even the um, the strongest couples they're still bicker they have their disagreements but what they do that the couples that don't do so well do is they repair quickly they get things back on track how do you tell what is a successful relationship because obviously people who stay together is one indicator but that's not always a good thing for people is it if they're in a relationship that's not working I think you need to observe observe them in situ. It's like, look, this is what I do in my therapy practice every day. I'm watching the couples. How do they communicate? Uh, what are they doing verbally and non-verbally? That's really important to look at. Uh, things like facial expressions, tone of voice can be very threatening to the other partner. So if you're looking at how couples treat each other, that can be a very good indicator of, of how well they're doing. And Lauren, as a social scientist, tell us a bit about what kinds of areas of popular culture you study and what they tell you about our preoccupations around relationships. Yeah, I'm interested in how film and television, uh, a little bit of theatre, but mainly film and television, both mirror what our lives are like, but also provide us informal educations about. So particularly around topics that we don't get a formal education on in school settings, I think film and television really step up to the plate and provide us information in an informal setting where we don't really know that we're being educated, but we're getting lots of lessons about what 
constitutes courtship and what constitutes a successful relationship and what the goals are. And that's kind of the stuff that I'm mostly interested in. I've noticed too that you've been uh, posting on your Twitter account a lot of ads from previous eras recently. What are the, some, of, some of the ways that expectations around people's roles in relationships and our expectations for relationships have changed over the, the decades we've seen? Yeah, look, I'm really interested in Clinton's point about there being uh, communication and sort of lessons that are hallmarks of successful relationships, because largely this stuff is actually absent from most of our popular culture. What happens is the nice gestures of kindness and the affirmations and the communication all happens in courtship on film and television. And the end goal is the coupling up and making sure that we're together forever in perfect harmony. But there are very few examples from pop culture about how to make it work after you've coupled. So most of the action, and, you know, it makes sense because, again, it's not, you know, uh, highly dramatic to watch a couple sort of <laughs> thrashing through the daily chore list. But that idea of the sort of good stuff all happening before you couple, that's really been consistent across you know, be it the Western literature canon, but also then the, the film and TV that that's informed. I think we're getting better at doing it. I think because audiences are more cynical now that the happy ever after thing is, uh, you know, we, we look at that with more of a sceptical eye. And I think we're also seeing greater diversity in terms of who's allowed to couple. It's not just young, hot, white people who find love anymore. Yeah, though there's still a significant backlog to trawl through. And we'll look at some examples as the program progresses here on Life Matters today of healthy and not so healthy examples from popular culture. I was thinking of Date Night, the Will, the uh, Steve Carell and Tina Fey film, because they're a middle-aged couple and they, you know, obviously they have to get into extreme danger and run away from bad people, but it, it's a very bonding experience. Perhaps you've got a relationship role model, either from your life or from popular culture that you'd like to share with us. Because sometimes we see things on TV or in film or in books and think, oh, that's so romantic and beautiful. And then later in life, we think, I don't know if that's a sustainable way to run a relationship. I'd love to hear your thoughts on what you took from these role models and uh, realised was a healthy way to run a relationship. Amber's from North Parramatta. Amber, how much guidance did you have from popular culture or elsewhere in your young life? Well, I don't know. I think days of our lives was a lifesaver. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) It was so slow and everybody explained everything about why they did things and it unwound over weeks and weeks because I had such um, a dysfunctional upbringing with dysfunctional people. It wasn't so much they were dysfunctional. I didn't fit in, I don't think, with them because I was the odd one out. So the days of our lives just went through people's thoughts and emotions and... You know, you watched it all unfold and how everybody reacted and whether it was good or bad. But the biggest thing out of all of it, I guess, as you watch all of these things and people around you and whatnot, the best thing is to like yourself more. That's important, isn't it, Amber, when, you, mm. when you're learning about liking it's, someone else? Yeah. You've got to like yourself more and you've got to kind of understand that emotions come and go, memories come and go, and things unfold in like cycles and sometimes it's good and sometimes it's not good, but you've got to stay consistent with yourself and authentic. Yes, well, in days of our lives went in cycles too, didn't it? Every so often people came back from the dead and took 
up when they left off. That used to get me a lot, where how people were resurrected. I thought, no, that's not good. No. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I think, um, I think a lot of us, um, you know, even watching our own families, even in good families, are a bit unsure and get a lot of things from TV and popular movies. And I think it's um, a melting pot, really. Yeah, yeah. But the best thing is to like yourself and know that you're solid on yourself. And if someone says, I don't like you said that or I don't like you, you know what? Walk away and say, well, I like me. <laughs> yeah, well, that's one approach. We'll chat to Clinton about other approaches too. But, Amber, thanks for your call. Ivan's in McLeod. Ivan, welcome to you. Good morning again. Now, your parents were a big influence. Why? Uh, well, they showed mutual respect. They gave each other demonstrable physical uh, love. And uh, my mother used to cook and my father would do the drying up while she did, after she did the dishes. So there was some cooperation going on? All the way through. And, Ivan, did they seem to enjoy each other's company? Yes. Yeah, that's key, isn't it, when you can, as a child, see people enjoying spending time together? Yes. Mm. Thanks for your call, Ivan. Clinton Power, I wanted to ask you about the issue of cultural differences when we look at what we think of as healthy relationships because might there not be a a range of things that different people think constitutes a good relationship? I think absolutely that cultural factors are, are very important and particularly today because we live in such a multicultural society that we can't um, assume that what uh, uh, one couple may assume as a healthy relationship necessarily would apply to a different culture. Just look at arranged marriages. I mean, a lot of people struggle to get their head around how that might work, but for some couples that have entered into an arranged marriage, they've actually made it work. Yes, indeed. Well, and I guess that spans the the variety of humans too, doesn't it? Even if you're not looking at cultural differences per se, one person's, uh, you know, independence and a, and a healthy distance is another person's unbridgeable gulf and they feel lonely. How do you deal with that kind of thing? I think the really important thing is understanding. I mean, with the couples I work with, it's really critical. I mean, I think of every relationship as a multicultural relationship because everyone has a different history, uh, different experiences, just like your caller Ivan then was describing. What a beautiful blueprint he's absorbed as a child growing up, seeing his parents uh, you know, operate with teamwork and that kindness and respect and affection. And unfortunately, other people have the opposite experience. Maybe they grew up with a lot of uh, conflict, Maybe there were um, there was a divorce or separation that was very destructive or acrimonious, and so every couple brings those histories and experiences into their relationship, and that that can require a bit of um, untangling of, of what that means for each of them and how they're going to create a healthy relationship going forward. And how much of our ideas about relationships do we pick up in our youth from the people closest to us, and how much comes later on from influences more outside? Personally, I think the family experience is profound. We just can't overlook that and the impact that has on children. And, um, you know, that that is, we all know that children are like sponges and they just absorb everything they they witness, everything they hear. So I think that is a big factor. Uh, peer relationships are also very important. Um, and then as, as Lauren was referring to, uh, looking at popular media, I think that that is huge. And if we look at the rise of reality TV over the last decade, I mean, 
that is probably a pretty destructive representation of human relationships if you look at something like married at first sight. So I think you need to be very selective about who you're using as your mentors or as the representations of a healthy relationship. We're speaking with Clinton Power, who's a relationship counsellor, spent a lot of time in therapy with couples, uh, helping them move towards healthier relationships. And Associate Professor Lauren Rosewarne, who's a social scientist and expert in media and pop culture at Melbourne University. Lauren Rosewarne, Clinton mentioned Married at First Sight. Let's, let's dive down into that a little bit. For people who aren't familiar with it, it's a dating show that gets complete strangers and pretends that they're married and they have to hang out as a couple for a while. What happens? Is there a a, a portrayal of any kind of relationship most of us would be familiar with? No. What I think that the um, value of these kind of reality dating shows really is, is to get people to have conversations with their partners where they use these shows as a kind of vehicle or a talking point. But mostly I think the value is actually getting people in a household to watch a show together. You know, there's an element of of socialising there. And if you think about um, changing viewing patterns over the last decade or so, in fact, television has become a more solitary viewing you know, we're no longer using the television as the sort of um, household fireplace anymore that we sit around. We're more likely to be watching it in different rooms on our own, different programs. And these shows, as much as I personally hate them, they do have an element of bringing people together because they're appealing to a broader demographic than some of the other material we're watching at the moment. Is it a case of the the people who produce them going, let's make the most outrageous thing we can to draw people together in their outrage and condemnation? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, the very fact that these shows have such, you know, extremes of emotions, that's because the producers have deliberately selected people who don't have rational responses to things and (laughs) therefore put them all together. If it was ordinary people who actually knew good conflict resolution and could model, you know, healthy relationships, you would not be going on this show. You know, it's a very selected sample because it's unscripted. You need people's natural craziness to come out and be demonstrated to an audience. most viewers understand that this is manufactured, this is not real life, do you think? Yeah, look, we've had reality television in various guises since the 1980s. Of course, it's ramped up in recent years, but I think audiences really know not just about the fact that it's not reality so much as on scripted television, but I think that we've become more savvy to things like editing, you know, because invariably you're going to have a contestant of any of these shows come out and say, oh, they made me look like the devil. I wasn't really like that. And I think that there is a perception that, sure, there's some stuff that's, you know, an accurate representation representation of, of the contestant or the individual, but that there is also a, um, you know, hours of footage that are condensed down into what a 30 minute episode and it doesn't tell the full story. Helen's in Sydney. Helen, what, if anything, influenced you? Well, um, actually, nothing has really influenced me at all. I think it's something that you've got to learn yourself. I'm talking about young love and it's trial and error. And I think the whole thing is really just a trick. It's all a trick about nature. The romance is there to, to get human beings and animals to um, to procreate. And um, human love, I think, is completely different. You know, when that people have been married for about 86 years, that's really, I mean, not 86 years, but about 50 years, I think, is, is really wonderful when it happens. But um, I, I don't think television or, or I think literature and poetry augment how we're feeling, but they don't, it doesn't really help us. It's just, you know, when you are in love, you do turn to those, 
to to those wonderful things of poetry and literature and music and and everything. But I think it's just it's just a a process of knowing yourself, as one person said there, that it's really knowing yourself first. You know, if you don't love yourself, how can you expect anyone else to? So you've just got to move through that kind of heady pheromone stage and and work out for yourself the mechanics of the relationship afterwards, Helen. Uh, absolutely, and it just takes the right person to bring out the best uh, qualities in you or, you know, that's the marriage of minds or the physicality of it. That's interesting and, um, though, isn't it, that idea that it has to be the right person because then sometimes you find yourself in the situation of saying, oh, this isn't working, so maybe it's not the right person and I'll go and find another person. Is that a, a useful approach though? Uh, yes. It's a good <laughs> <laughs> Well, horses for courses, isn't it? Whatever works for you. (laughs) Helen, thanks for calling in. It's a pleasure. Clinton Power, that that is an interesting approach, isn't it? How much stock should we place in the idea that it's the person we've chosen that is causing the issues? Uh, Very little, I would say. Um, You know, my my approach is that Everyone's difficult. I'm difficult. You're difficult. Human relationships are complex and challenging. Um, anytime you start to get irritated with your partner is actually a good opportunity to think about, well, how am I irritating? Because there's a good chance you will find things that you know are pretty annoying. Yep. Let me count the ways. We're looking at relationships today. And Kate says, I had no examples of healthy relationships growing up. I thought Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton had a passionate (laughs) relationship. And this became my ideal, says Kate. I had a codependent, toxic, alcohol-ridden marriage and a few unhappy relationships in my life, only to end up a loner in late life. I realise now, says Kate, too late, that passion is poison. And someone else says, Mulder and Scully from The X-Files are the perfect example for me of a couple with mutual trust, respect and friendship. That's interesting, Lauren Rosewarn, isn't it? Because they didn't get together till the very late stages of that series and when they did it, jumped the shark. Yeah, we wouldn't have had a show um, if, if they got together in the first season, right? There is a lot of shows. Bones comes to mind as another example where you've got two, you know, partners who really take a long time to couple because the simmering sexual tension is what's going to drag out the episodes. And, you know, it's not going to work as a dynamic if they're together from the start. But what I think if we are to draw a lesson from Say the X-Files is that these two people have learnt to work together, you know, in a professional capacity, which provides them, you know, the tools for a relationship. Similarly, they, you know, worked in um, eight hours a day together, so it's setting them up for a potentially long relationship. You know, there's a number of different lessons you could say that relate to things that Clinton had mentioned, which is about having a friendship and mutual respect with somebody before you hit your wagon to them, which is very much unlike most romantic style um, uh, television shows or movies where there's not a lot of friendship. You're not seeing a lot of friendship or people working together first, it's more about, as some of the callers have mentioned, the heat of passion or what's often called the, you know, limerent stage or the honeymoon phase, as opposed to the hard work of relationship building. Yeah, well, they also, Mulder and Scully had the flattest affect I've ever seen on TV, so there's very little kind of Oh, and they had the excitement of aliens and whatnot. I mean, we don't have that in our lives. That's why most relationships tend to be a bit boring. There's very little, you know, succubuses or, you know, all the excitement. Simon, the X-Files had. <laughs> well, you talked about the chore list before. That can be a moment of high drama in some relationships. That is true. Yeah. <laughs> Let's go to Castlemaine in central Victoria. Suzanne wants to chat to us. Hi, Suzanne. Hello. How are you? Good. Now, you were a marriage celebrant for 10 years. What did you learn? I was 
being a marriage celebrant became very important to me in how to guide people. I would have a, an original meeting with a couple, which would last two to three hours. Um, and it was fantastic to talk to these two people to get them to tell their life story. And I would always get the man to start. And she was not allowed to interrupt him. And usually the guys had a lot of trouble remembering dates and times and things, but the women had it down pat. Um, but but I, my, my main advice really was loyalty not to air your dirty linen in public, to present a marriage. The marriage that you presented to the world had to illustrate your loyalty and your your friendship and the basis of friendship. I used to say to them, you know, you've, you are the guardian of each other's solitude. And by that I meant that they were to let, almost to set the, set the partner free to, to have that own time, their own time and space. Do you know what I mean? So that uh, as an architect myself, I always used to, love to, if I was designing a house for someone, to have the woman have her own room and the guy to have his office space or whatever is there because I feel we give kids their own rooms but we're meant to stick together in this one one space, you know. It's a lot of pressure. Um, the other thing was to say to them was to let the winds of heaven dance between you. And by that it meant you're not living out of each other's pockets. There's this wonderful thing where, it, for example, in an, in an Indian or an Eastern marriage, she is the goddess, your goddess, and he is your god. And this allows the respect to come through into a marriage. It's interesting on our Facebook page, Suzanne, people are saying a lot of different comments about what constitutes a healthy relationship and where they picked up these ideas. And one mm. of them says it should be mutually worshipful. You should both worship each other. That's, I wondered if that was a, a realistic goal. Well, I think for the for the people I'm talking about who who obey that they have a deep religious connection and it and it makes sense to them that that's how they they that's how they respect each other. One of the questions I ask them is whose marriage do you admire? And that used to hit a wall sometimes. Um, there was just a blank uh, a blank look on their faces, and then they sometimes they would say their parents, and I would say, well, in that case, you were very blessed if you've got parents who've got you know given you a marriage to look up to. Um, it comes down to a, a sort of bottom line of respect and friendship and humour and, um, and and allowing allowing people to talk, even if you know in tribal law, you know they hand the talking stick across the, across the space, and then it's your turn. Mm, yep, and it's something we, uh, we talk know, to toddlers about too. We take turns talking. Yeah. yeah, that's a really interesting thing. Suzanne, thank you for adding that in to our discussion today. We're speaking with Clinton Power, who's a relationships counsellor, and Associate Professor Lauren Rosewarn, social scientist and expert in media and pop culture, about what things we pick up from those areas when it comes to healthy relationships. She's with the University of Melbourne. Barbara's in Tweed. Barbara, what influences were they for you on healthy relationships? Um, I had a profound moment when I was about 10. I was the product of divorce. I was with my grandmother. And she and my grandfather had the most stunning, loving, sharing, caring relationship. And one day she said to me, you know why I love you, Pop? That was my pa, the Irish Catholic. He came home from work. He said, get out all the gardening tools. We're gardening from now on. I have no job. I was told to sack 300 workers. This is during the Depression. And I knew that I would force them into the most dreadful poverty. I could not do it. So we've got no income. I've got to get the gardens going. My grandmother turned to me intensely and said, 
I knew I was the luckiest woman in the world. I had married a man with the highest principles that anyone could ever have. Being 10, that struck me profoundly. Mm. And I witnessed their cooperation, their sharing, their love. And it also stayed with me right through to my adulthood. What are the strong principles that we share? Yep. Yep, that's really interesting, Barbara. Thank you so much. We've been talking a lot about communication and respect, but that is such a, a crystalline example of how uh, a relationship, two people in a relationship can see the bigger picture together and that helps them get over the, the smaller bits. Linda's in Leichhardt in Sydney. Linda, what was it for you? Look, I think, I think it's a really interesting discussion. Uh, one of the things that was really powerful for me as a mother of two sons was watching Tim Allen's show, Man About the House. Oh, yes. And... Uh, uh, I liked your, your your concept of the TV being the fireplace. And as a family, we would gather and watch this. And it was fun and it was comedy, but it also explored a lot of elements of masculinity. Um, you know, there were times where Tim Allen would be con- talking across the fence to an older man to get advice. And then there'd be the, the silly dynamics of the, him as a dad wrestling with being a young man and wanting powerful engines, but still being a caring father. So it, it was really useful for us as a family with, with two sons growing. That's really interesting, isn't it? Because if you reel off a list of some of the shows that you think about uh, when when you think about relationships, sometimes people just laugh. Really? The Simpsons? But there's often elements that you can draw on, aren't there, that are, are so useful for our own lives? Yeah, it was it was really useful for me because I could really identify. There were sometimes things that would come out in the show and I would think, yeah, yeah, I get it. I, I could see that perspective of, of him, you know, Tim Allen often wrestling with the idea of, of still being a big boy himself, but being responsible as a father and, and being caring as, as a husband. Home Improvement, that was the name of it, wasn't it? Tim Allen? Home Improvement. Oh, yes. yes, it was too. Man About the House is a different program. Yes, yes. I was thinking that's a different <laughs> right, set of, of influences completely. Well, Linda, of thanks course. so much for that. It's lovely to hear how you can yeah, pull those strands out that are relevant to you. Another text on that topic. As a parent with young children, says this person, Chili and Bandit from Bluey. Affection, great teamwork and communication skills and equitable division of labour. Couple and parenting goals. Yeah, then my favourite is when she hides in the cupboard, <laughs> leaves him to himself with the kids. That's fun. Uh, Clinton Power, Relationship Counselor. We've been talking a lot about communication today and the the nuts and bolts of sitting down and talking to each other, which, as Lauren Rosewarn has said, is completely absent from most romantic comedies. What about the nonverbal elements of relationship communication? How important are they and how do we get them right? Oh, they're incredibly important because I think from eons of uh, our evolution, uh, we have been wired as human beings to be very um, sensitive to potential threats. And as I was mentioning before, it can be as easy as um, just some movement of the body. It could be a facial expression, a look sideways that we can pick up in our partner and immediately start to feel threatened without a single word having been uttered. So it's really important to learn the um, 
learn to be sophisticated in terms of how to influence your partner. And it may even be raising a difficult topic with a smile, you know, saying it in a friendly tone of voice with some prosody in your voice can make a big difference uh, in, in terms of how your partner receives you. And Clinton, a lot of couples disagree about things sometimes. What would a healthy love relationship do to repair those times when we're in conflict? The important thing is to address the issue as soon as possible. So if there's a disagreement, there's been some upset, you don't want to let it kind of simmer away for many hours or even days. You know, some couples get into a, a pattern where they stonewall, you know, they go into the silent treatment, one partner withdraws, and it's incredibly destructive to relationships. So, you know, if you can start the repair process, you don't have to solve it straight away. You know, it's okay to go to bed angry if you can sleep, That you know, you don't have to resolve everything before you go to sleep. But the important thing is you've made some attempt to repair and you want to lead with that relief. So you're focusing on your partner, you using empathy, you're saying, look, I want to work this out. Let's try and resolve this together, get things back on track, putting down the defences, putting down the ammunition so that you can get back to a point of feeling like you're a team, um, protecting each other from, from from the world and all the stresses that life entails. And that, that putting down the, the arm, arms involves being able to soothe yourself and each other to an extent, doesn't it? How do healthy couples do that? Absolutely. You know, self-soothing, we don't talk a lot about it, but a lot of people get flooded in uh, in conflict. And flooding just means you get physiologically aroused, you start to lose it, demons are going to come out of your mouth, or you feel like you'd want to run away and hide. And the really critical thing is you actually need to take a break, a time out, take a break, self-soothe, get your, um, your nervous system regulated again by doing something really calming or soothing for 20 minutes before you come back to, to reconnect. And it's a very simple strategy that can actually be very powerful for, for most couples. Yeah, 20 minute little break and then come back to each other. Uh, Lauren, what does TV tell us about how couples resolve conflict? Yeah, look, I think that that's perhaps the worst lessons that we get from film and television is the absence of that, because I think that there's a sort of undercurrent of film and television that has this kind of predestined love is in the stars and therefore if you're meant to work, it will just work, as opposed to the fact that, in fact, relationships take labour. Now, it doesn't mean that, you know, it it should always be horrible and, and toil, but that idea that it's an ongoing thing as opposed to once you couple up, that's the end of the story. Relationships tend not to be shown that way on, in film and TV. You either get the extremities, you know, you get the breakup show, you know, like Marriage Story from a couple of years ago, which shows the collapse, the dramatic collapse of a relationship, or you get the good stuff in the lead up to coupling. Not a lot about how to actually resolve conflicts. Perhaps because it's actually not that exciting viewing because healthy conflict resolution involves talking and that's, you know, something you don't tend to see much in film and TV. Well, I don't know, you get lots of images of people glued to each other for days at a time and sitting in cafes, the montage of, you know, walking down the street, I mean, they appear to be talking, but yes, you don't get the concrete examples <laughs> they're not resolved. Yeah, they're not doing the division of labour stuff or who's going to pick the kids up or I'm really feeling like you're not pulling your weight in the house, you know, the, the boring stuff or I'm not being seen or your gestures of love aren't working for me or our sex life is in the toilet. That stuff isn't really explored. It's more about what we're we're saying is kind of the dating get to know you stuff, which is the kind of, you know, exciting stuff at the beginning. Yep. Margaret's texted in Out of Africa movie. Three people in the relationship, but they respected <laughs> each other through difficulties and conflict. That's an unusual example. And someone else says, here's why we've been in love for 48 years. 
listen. One little word. Lauren, what about examples of healthy pop culture relationships? Can we think of any? The first thing that came to mind for me was Shit's Creek, which is a sitcom that was made in Canada that had a beautiful, episode. you know, there was a number of, I think, good relationships in the show, but I think the one that was most endearing to audiences was the uh, central gay relationship with the son, David, and his partner. Oh, and yes. it, it, it was just lovely. I, I think I, I, I think I watched that many times and teared up. It was a really, you know, for a sitcom, it was actually quite moving because, it wasn't about, you know, will we be accepted by our families or anything like that. It was about two quite different personalities making it work. And I think that's something that I guess is a little different from, say, Home Improvement or The Simpsons, where a lot of those relationships, which look, you know, a little bit dysfunctional, but they love each other at the end, there's still a dynamic, particularly for women, that they'll recognise, which is women still also parenting their husbands and I think that that's something that sitcoms again they're they're moving out of this terrain but that's a really problematic presentation of that being a norm you know dysfunctional families that love each other but the woman still does a lot of parenting including of her partner and that's something that breeds resentment and I think that that was absent from Schitt's Creek this idea of of those kind of gendered dynamics which I think sadly are still everywhere in pop culture. Yep. Everybody Loves Raymond, one of my least favourite shows of all time. Sneaky, manipulative. Yeah, and it's the constant refrain of women not wanting to have sex. And the sheer number yeah, (laughs) the sheer number of shows from the 80s and 90s about that cliche of men want sex, women don't, is again one of those dodgy lessons we learn from these shows. Yep. Someone else on our Facebook page suggested Morticia and Gomez Adams. Tick, tick, tick. Let's take a few couple of calls before we finish up here on Life Matters today with this fascinating discussion about relationship role models uh, from life and popular culture. David's in Vermont South in Melbourne. David, welcome to you. The big thing that people don't talk about is each person, the couple, likes seeing the other person happy. Yes. It's as simple as that. That's a very simple and wonderful thing to say. Thank you, David. And Gwillem is in Elton in New South Wales near Lismore. Gwillem, what influenced you in relationships? I just think we need to do better relationships. And I came from a family of seven, and my parents, uh, I believe it was a false, uh, you know, family narrative which shaped me and formed my life. And uh, when I was 38, I had a midlife crisis. That was the best thing that ever happened because it turned me around and I I went on a seven-year soul-searching journey about who I was, what, what it was about, um, I was also a very, I believe I'm a very sensitive kind of person. And if we don't do better relationships, it's so painful. I just think it is incredibly painful in this world. We've got to create a better world. And we are, you know, our relationships, our what we do with each other is inextricably linked to the big, big political pictures of this world. Yes, indeed. We live in a, in a, in a quagmire of dysfunction. We are a collective, and that collective would be solid if the relationships were better built. Yeah, it's interesting hearing about people talking about the principles and the bigger picture informing their romantic relationships they've observed, but that goes out much wider, doesn't it, to our collective relationships. Clinton Power, let's talk quickly about the role model couples in your life. I mean, you're a relationships counsellor. You must have had some pretty strong models of what to do or not to do that made you think, I'm going to help other people get 
to get to that stage? I think my parents were good models. I even remember as a child, my mother uh, greeting my father at the front door when he came home from work with the suitcase and the tire and uh, giving him a hug and a lingering kiss and just noticing that and thinking, oh, that's that's a really lovely um, kind of gesture. And even as an adult, that's been something important for me just to focus on those kind of reunions. And I often encourage the couples I work with to really mark those unions, make them rituals of connection that you can do every day that really reinforce force your connection in the relationship but um, look I'm a big fan of seeking out mentors so I think if you're a couple uh, look for other couples in your friendship circle or your community that really represent for you in a healthy respectful kind affectionate couples because I think that is a wonderful way we can influence each other as adults today and um, you know therapy is also great you can do your individual therapy you can go to couples therapy and you don't have to be in crisis to go to couples therapy you can have it even better. We're having a little little problem with Clinton's line there. But yes, I think the pandemic has made a lot of people look at some of the ways their relationships work and think, I would like that to be better. Let's try and make that better. I want to finish up on this call from Liam in Adelaide. Liam, thank you so much for calling in. Tell us about you and your wife's relationship. Beretta and I shared uh, 54 years together. We were both reasonably intelligent people. We realised the importance of respecting uh, independence for each other, uh, our, our unique gifts that we brought to the uh, relationship. And uh, I had always sort of had a, a cosmic sort of uh, element to my personality, which we shared. And, and Carl Sagan's manifesto on humanity, you know, his uh, 300 words on the blue dot, uh, meant a lot for us and we tried constantly to give our expressions to our love in as something very special and I was reading through a lot of her cards and uh, we we urged each other on, we tra- we travelled, we shared the excitement, etc. I'll just give you three three lines of, of the poem, it's 13 lines, it's maybe too long. but Yes, I think life- we've only got about 10 seconds, Liam. In life, my love, my very soul became as gypsy travellers, as gypsy lovers between the wheels. We wanted starry nights. Our fairy tale was so complete and ever happy ever after. Um, unfortunately, it wasn't ever after. But uh, to be at one, to be in love forevermore, at love, at one among the stars. Liam, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts of your late wife with us, and and thank you, yeah, for your call today. This is Life Matters on Radio National and uh, we've been speaking with Clinton Power who's a relationships counsellor and Associate Professor Lauren Rosewarn who's a social scientist and an expert in media and popular culture at the University of Melbourne. Lauren Rosewarn, thanks very much for your time today. Thanks for having me, Hilary. Clinton Power, great to talk to you. Thanks, Hilary. year, Life Matters turned 30, and we asked former presenters to choose an interview from one of those years that stayed with them. Amanda Smith chose this conversation. Let's take a listen. This year, Life Matters turns 30. And to celebrate, we've taken one interview from every year we've been with you. So let's spin that wheel and see which year we play today. It's 2018. 
Dan Yaramunya has lots of fingers in lots of pies. He's owned and runs art galleries. He represents Aboriginal artists. He's a painter himself as well as a businessman, charity worker, musician. He thinks he might be the first Indigenous guy to own a Lamborghini. Life wasn't always so positive and productive, though. Hi, Stan. Welcome to Life Matters. Tell us a bit about your childhood, your parents, Mm -hmm. where you grew up. I grew up in uh, Swan Hill. um, In in, Victoria? In Victoria, yes. I was in Swan Hill. And uh, my mother and father, we we lived on an orchard where they used to pick grapes and stuff like that. And then my father left and then we we went down to uh, Ballarat. And at the age of seven, I met up with him again. And then from there, I remember my mother and father having a bit of an argument. And then before you know it, I was on a, on a highway hitchhiking from Ballarat to Adelaide. And I remember sleeping out on the side of the road the first night when we couldn't get a ride. And, and I said to myself, when I'm a big boy, I'm going to drive my own car. And I meant what I said because I wasn't going to rely on anybody. So now this was with your, your dad. You were kind of mm. on the road with your dad. Your dad was a white guy, your yes. mother an Indigenous woman. Yes, that's right. Yeah. yeah. So So... You write all about this in, uh, well, the story of your life so far in a memoir that's just come out called A Man Called Yarra, and you really describe how your father, mm-hmm. Frankie yeah. was his name, was a kind of restless person, wasn't he? Couldn't settle in one place yeah. for, for any length of time. And as you, you say, you joined him often on the road along with your siblings at various times. Yeah. Why do you think your dad, you know, was so... Why was your dad so restless? Um, and why did he take you with him? Yeah, well, he said... He never wanted another man to bring up his children, so he grabbed me first and then we went on the road for a couple of years and we went back and got my brother David and then we went back and got my other sister Lynette. And then we just kept travelling and, you know, my mum had the federal police after us for so many years looking for us. Um, they finally caught up with us up in Sydney and they took my brother and sister back to Melbourne and they left me with my father because my mother knew that I would be fretting too much for my father because, you know, I just, I just needed to be with him because he was a really good man. We've had a lot of experiences together. They're all, they're all good experiences. I didn't do a lot of schooling and stuff like that. But yeah, what I was going to say, where, did, did you no, go to school? No, I haven't. Probably done two weeks of schooling. Yeah, um, but it didn't stop me from doing anything I wanted to do. Because, like I said earlier, when I said I was seven, I'm going to drive my own car. So nothing sort of, no, nothing sort of is Quite in a my flash car too. Yeah, I've had a couple of nice ones, and I only done that because of the experiences I've had when I worked with certain people. I remember working at the uh, at the water board one time and this guy started to tell a story about Aboriginal people living in his mate's place and burning a hole in the middle of the floor. He really humiliated me and I thought to myself, I'm going to prove it to you that we're not like that, but I don't have to do that today, but that's what I thought back then. And I remember buying this car of, um, 15 years later, I pulled up at the uh, stoplights and he pulled up beside me in a garbage truck and I looked up at him and said, oh, well, that's the way it, that's the way it rolls. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's mm-hmm. not good to be judging people and pointing the finger at everybody you know, when you look at yourself, I think people do that because they're, they're not comfortable with themselves. And that's why I like to just keep pushing things forward. I come from the oldest living culture in the world and I'm proud, of, I'm proud to be an Aboriginal man and I never have to prove anything to anybody because, you know, after all, we're just another grain of sand on the beach. Nobody's that special. You know what I mean? Your childhood, though, just, just to stick with that for a moment, I mean, mm. you know, being sort of on the move constantly with your dad yeah. uh, and also your dad mm. was a very heavy drinker. Yes, he was. So, yeah. you know, there were there were times when he'd be, 
you know, passed out in the yeah. park and if yeah. you saw the cops coming, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you'd have to sort of pretend to be yeah. playing so that they, you know, they I'd thought you'd keep driving past and think that he was just passed out. I, he was just laying to have an arrest and I'd get up doing somersaults and this and that and I'd, the police would look at me and I'd look at them, wave at them, they'd give me a bit of a smile, think, what's going on here? But they'd just keep driving and I'd say, Dad, quick, get up, we're going to go. So I'd get him up and, you know, he'd be drunk and I'd take him around and put him up a laneway somewhere and just leave him there and then come back later and pick him up and then we'd let up at another place. But, you know, he was an alcoholic. It, it killed him at the age of 44, um, but he was a very, very good, strong worker as well. And I remember the people that on my journey that he introduced me to said, your dad's a really good worker. So that ethic come into my into my thought and I've always gonna be I'm always gonna be a worker. I'm not gonna let I'm not gonna rely on other people is my thing, yeah. Well, the mm. other thing that you did pick up from your father was that for a time you took up alcohol yes. in yeah. a big way, Stan. Mm. Which on one hand, I mean, did for a time keep you from living up to your potential. Mm-hmm. But on the other, it actually brought you closer to your Indigenous culture, in mm. that you were do, you were doing a couple of days a week work cleaning and cooking at um, Galliamble. Now yes. this was a centre for Aboriginal people mm-hmm. with addictions yeah. in St Kilda in Melbourne. Mm-hmm. Dur- during that time, what did you get in the sort of cultural awareness? Um, yeah. tra- they had training programs, I think, mm. that that resonated with you. Yeah, they did. They had um, art classes there and and things like that. And I felt like with myself, I'm sort of like on a journey and I was sort of like put there anyway to learn. That's where I really got more involved with the culture because there was an art teacher there and I was I was doing some painting and over the weekend and she come in on the Monday and she goes, oh, who done this? I said, I did. And, you know, she liked it and she bought it from me. And back then I was thinking to myself, gee, this is all right, I can make some money from this, you know, not realising that I was actually getting more and more involved with my culture. So I've always believed that um, my ancestors are sort of with me and certain other people that want to get for us to get out there and, and share our culture with the wider community because it's a good it's a good culture to be a part of you know it's our culture it's Australia's culture and you know that's why that's my responsibility to do as much as I can every day even doing this interview with you right now is like the people that are listening it makes them more aware of the culture that's in their country you know it, it's 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 they're beautiful you know I've been to Alice Springs and places like that. And I've seen the way our, the brothers and sisters up there do all their art and everything. It's just, it just blows my mind to be a part of that. And if we're an Australian and we, we, we look at it that way, well, then we all should be proud of it, you know? Well, now, your name, Yaramunya, mm. wasn't always how you were known. You were Stan, Stanny Dryden. That's it, yeah. How did you come to get Yaramunya as your that name? All, yeah, well, that also happened at Galliamble as well. There's an old, older guy there from uh, South Australia. His name was uh, Robert Mate Mate. And he'd be watching me there. He was actually a pay, uh, like a, uh, a client in this place. And he'd be looking at me and he'd be saying to me, mate, he goes, um, he goes, Yaramunya, and I'm looking around like, he said, yeah, you, Yaramunya. I said, what does that mean? He goes, wise man. He said, that's your name. I go, how do you, what would you, why are you saying that about me? And he goes, because I watch you and, you know, you're doing the things that, you know, Aboriginal men do. You know, you're trying to help your community by being in this place and the way you speak and the way you address yourself, that's the name I'm giving you. And I was, you know, I've just kept that name and... And, and did that yeah. sit right with you at the time, though, wise fellow? Did, I mean, you know, yeah. that's quite a bit to live up to. It is, yeah. Um, at that age, I, I didn't think I was that wise. But as the journey goes on, I realised that, that that name does fit today because I am doing a lot of good things in in for my community and, my, um, and myself and my own personal family, you know. 
my my children haven't seen me drink a lot of them, you know. I've, yeah, how and why and yeah, when did you get off the grog? I was 5th of August 1993. I was 28 years old. I was ready to launch and go for it, but something brought me to my knees and that's where it all um, changed for me, yeah. Mm. Now, throughout your life, starting with your mum, Charlotte, there have mm -hmm. been significant women who've really seen the best in you too. Uh, yep. Talking about your mother, you say people's dreams disappear, women's dreams more than most. Can you tell us what prompted that reflection? Yeah, well, my mother probably had a dream of having her husband and children all together and it didn't work out like... You all right? Do you want to take a little pause? That's all right. Yeah. Would you like to talk about something else, Dan? You, I've just touched a <coughs> yeah, sorry, a rawness in you. My my mother is very strong. Mm. This is this is this is a bit a bit uh, rough. We can come back to it if you like. I don't want to. Yeah, no. She's a very strong woman, and she never had the opportunity to look after her children. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a great sadness and, and source of sorrow for you. And perhaps I shouldn't have asked you. No, that's about okay. That. It's just I didn't. I don't realise when I'm talking. Just like this book, it's been a bit of a roller coaster for a couple of years talking with Robert Hillman and getting it out and I... This I, is your co-author. Yeah, and um, the whole thing comes out and it's like I didn't realise how many things I've done in my life and, you know, and there's, and there's reasons for what I've done and I know that, you know, I'm meant to, be keep, I'm meant to keep doing this sort of stuff in honour of my mother as well mm. because she was a strong Aboriginal woman and, um, yeah, I'm very proud to, to say that I'm the son of Charlotte, Charles, yeah. Well, you talked about uh, taking up painting when you were at yeah. Galliamble, yeah. uh, but your your creativity is sort of um, touched across multiple disciplines, really, um, as well as the painting. There's been music and mm -hmm. dancing and some acting. Now, the mm -hmm. acting was prompted by uh, you saw Ernie Dingo in the yeah. movie The Fringe Dwellers. Yeah. Tell us about that moment of seeing an Aboriginal man on your TV. Yeah, well, I was watching him and I thought to myself, geez, if he could do that, I could do that too. Not realising you have to go to study for schooling and reading and scripts and all that sort of stuff. That's the sort of person that I am. I'll just give it a go. Once I think about it, I'll go for it. And I don't take no for an answer because I'll say, oh, no, you can't do this, you can't do that. I go, well, no, well, then I'll do it. And then they go, how did you do that? And I go, well, you know, you weren't interested before, so it's okay, I'll let you go and I'll stick with the people that have got the um, encouragement and I'll stick with people like that, the positive people. And I keep driving. And to see him on TV, I thought, gee, that's good. And then, so anyway, two weeks later, I, I rang up um, ABC, I think it was, a Dinah Man, I think her name was. And um, So you just rang up I ABC just rang up, TV? Yeah. And she goes, come down and I'll have a chat How here. How old were you? At that time, I think it was about 26. Mm. Uh, so I went to the studios there and you know, I was on Flying Doctors. and I mean, well, I mean, how did that happen though? You know, you just ring yeah, up and just then... ring up. She said, come down. Uh, she said, read this script, but I couldn't read it. So I said, I'll come back you in a couple of minutes. couldn't read it because... Because I can't read. Mm. So I said, I'll come back. She liked the look of the way I was at that time. And uh, she goes, um, go away, learn it and come back. So I went away, learned it, come back with Sophia. My beautiful wife, she she read the uh, script to me and I went back and I So you memorised it? Memorised it. I've got a good memory. Mm -hmm. So then I went in and um, 
done the audition and she goes, I'll ring up Channel 7, Grundy's, and I was, I was on Flying Doctors within three weeks, four weeks of um, making that phone call. And then I started with uh, Hugh Jackman in Corrali and uh, uh, Barry Humphreys in Walk on a Whoop Whoop, Blue Healers, Law of the Land, and it just sort of just kept going in theatre. Done a, a play called Stolen, and that went for like five or six years. Went to the Stolen's by Jane, uh, Jane Harrison. Harrison and yeah. uh, directed by Wesley Enoch. Wesley Enoch, Enoch mm. who's now the artistic director of the yeah. Sydney Festival. Yeah, yeah. yeah definitely. So with all these, uh, you know, the t- all this television and and the theatre, then how were you learning scripts? Um, how was I learning? I'd go away and I'd uh, get Sophia to right. to learn it to me, and then I'd go back the next day and do it. Uh, we had um, Ted Emery from Full Frontal Fast Forward. He was going to offer me a role for like for 12, for 12 months on Full Frontal and so I'd go on guest appearance all the time. And he just said to me in a conversation, you'd be right to read the monitor and stuff like that. I said, oh, I actually don't read. He goes, hey, you been doing this, mate? <coughs> and I just said, oh, just go away, learn it, come back. He goes, all right, then we'll just keep bringing you back as a guest appearance. So that's why I was with um, Eric Batter and all those guys and it, it was a good journey. Mm-hmm. And I think the journey's still on. There's lots more of that sort of stuff to come on, I believe, yeah. So you... you uh you know, you can mix all this stuff mm. up. You run an art gallery, you represent yeah. Indigenous artists, yeah. the acting, the music, that all is of a piece for you somehow? It's all a part of art. It's mm. all a, There's no limit to art, so you can do whatever you like with it. So that's what I've been doing. Mm. Just keep going going one step ahead of the next. And uh, doing my best. have I done my best day's work yet? Um, yes, and I'm just going to keep doing it if I can. Well, the music uh, put you in touch with not only connecting you to to your mm. culture, but with people like Stevie Wonder. Yeah, that was Tell us experience. about meeting him. I met him at the um, at the Crown Casino ten years earlier, and then like later on in time, I met him again. They they uh, f- they flew me up to Sydney, and I performed with him. I was thought I was going to be on. You were playing didgeridoo. I was playing the didgeridoo. Yeah, you're singing superstitious, and I was playing the didge. And I got like 20,000 people out in front of me and my, my lips started to go numb. I'm thinking, geez, what's going on here? I can't believe I've got Stevie Wonder sitting beside me and I'm playing this DJ. It's like unbelievable. And I had the privilege of meeting uh, um, Bono as well because I heard him say, I can't change the world, but I know the people that can. So I made it my business to make him a, make him a DJ. So I'm walking in the Park Hyatt Hotel. This black car's coming out. The window comes down. He looks at me and he goes, are you looking for me? I said, yeah, I am actually. So I grabbed the ditch, put it through the window. He jumps out, gives me a cuddle and he goes, where are you off to now? So I just come and give you the ditch. I said, where are you going? And he said, I'm going to Etihad Stadium. So I just jumped in the car with him, went to Etihad Stadium, had a chat with him about what he said. And getting a cuddle from him. Yeah, whatever, yeah, it was great. Yeah. <laughs> How about that? I had the privilege to meet a lot of people like that. It's great. Well, Stan Yaramunya has written about all this and so much more in his autobiography that's called A Man Called Yarra, delving into his Aboriginal Aboriginality, alcoholism, art, music, acting, family, business, philanthropy. It's great to talk to you, Stan. Thank, Thank you, you so much. Appreciate it. Thank you. This is Life Matters with Amanda Smith. Celebrating 30 years of non-stop conversation. Life Matters on ABC Radio National. That's it from us for now. Join me next time for more great conversations for RN Summer. We're going to bring some real star power on our next edition with Hollywood legend Shirley MacLaine from our 30th anniversary series. She has some concrete connections with Australia and with her pets, as you'll hear. Don't miss that one. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.